Hello, and welcome to From Beta Cells to Bicycles, the official podcast of the BC Diabetes Research Network. I'm Krista Lamb, and today I'll be sharing my interview with Dr. Jonathan Little. Dr. Little is an associate professor at the School of Health and Exercise at the University of British Columbia. His work studies many aspects of diet and exercise in type 2 diabetes. Before our interview starts, just a note that in the COVID times, we're all doing our interviews remotely, so there may be a few small sound issues as everyone manages our new normal. Thanks for understanding. Welcome to the show, Dr. Little. I'm really excited to talk to you about your work today. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me on. I wanted to start first off, you were a runner, you were a competitive runner, and you decided to transition into diabetes research, which isn't the first thing I think about when I think of competitive running. So how did you make that transition? What was it that drew you to this work? Yeah, it's a great question. And it all comes down to uh, my interest in studying metabolism and skeletal muscle mitochondria, actually. So uh, in my, uh, my graduate training, particularly my PhD, I was interested in how exercise training, you know, that athletes would do uh, signal to your muscles to make new mitochondria and mitochondria obviously being the powerhouse of the cell making ATP or the energy that drives muscle contraction and exercise. If you're an athlete, you want to optimize your uh, making of new mitochondria and muscle. So we were studying how exercise signaled to do that and how to optimize exercise to make your muscles produce more mitochondria. And around that time, one of the leading theories of type two diabetes was that um, it was driven by a defect or dysfunction or uh, not enough mitochondria in your muscle. And when your muscle didn't have enough mitochondria, that would lead to a buildup of lipids or fats in muscle, which would impair insulin uh, signaling uh, and contribute to the development of, of insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. So we kind of put two and two together throughout my PhD. And we said, well, we're studying how exercise can optimize mitochondria with maybe a performance or a, an athlete angle. But but over here, we have this clinical population where uh, making new mitochondria would be a, a really good potential treatment option. And so my PhD kind of switched and we did the final study looking at exercise and mitochondria in people with type 2 diabetes. And lo and behold, uh, exercise increased mitochondria and reduced glucose. And that kind of got me uh, hooked or, or interested in, in research on type 2 diabetes. And now that you've moved to the University of BC and you're in the Okanagan, you've been doing a lot of stuff related to exercise um, in different forms. And so one of those has been around high intensity interval training. And when I interviewed Dr. Jung the other day, I said, it's one of those terms that needs a rebrand because people find it really intimidating when they hear that something is gonna be hit exercise. But you've been looking at how that can actually be really helpful to people living with type 2 diabetes or hoping to avoid living with type 2 diabetes. So can you tell me a little bit about that work? Dr. Jung would certainly be the expert on uh, how to reframe that or how to uh, uh, get people to do it. But uh, I think it's important to, to remember that high intensity is relative to your fitness level. So high intensity interval training for an athlete might be sprinting or, or you know, hammering really hard on a, on a bike, high intensity interval training for someone with who's 65 years old with type two diabetes might be walking briskly or, or walking up, uh, up an incline or up a hill. So um, we, we think that it is very applicable to, um, to all sorts of individuals, um, as well as that it's kind of naturally progressive and individualized. So 
um, you know, the work has progressed from kind of, uh, you know, detailed exercise physiology where we're looking at heart rates and oxygen consumption to kind of, no, I wouldn't say throwing that out the window, but just saying, hey, we just want to uh, use the interval training to to get individuals to push themselves a little bit. And, and one of my uh, former graduate students who is, who is one of the best exercise trainers uh, for HIT in people with type 2 diabetes, Dr. Monique Francois, she used to say, we, we just want to get uh, individuals to, to huff and puff was her, her word. So you're just working a little hard and, and then you get to take a break. And, and again, from a physiology and a metabolic perspective, there's some, uh, some key benefits to, to going a little bit more vigorous, um, which can, can help with the adaptations to exercise and then particularly for uh, improving insulin sensitivity and glucose control. So our work on HIT has kind of uh, morphed, uh, as you mentioned, into a rebrand. And, and I think that's the, the most important thing to recognize is that it's, it's uh, relative to your fitness level. So it's not like you need to be uh, going all out. And, and really our HIT work now is, is moved away from uh, in that field. It's the, you can divide HIT into sprint interval training, which is sometimes called SIT. And that's when you're going all out very hard. And that's where we started, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Now we do HIT, which is, again, not all out, more uh, in the vigorous intensity zone, um, just in an on and off pattern. And yet SIT sounds so much more uh, relaxing. So that's what I said. <laughs> yes. Rebrands needed. And I, I think that what I'm, I'm getting at too is also these misconceptions about people thinking about using exercise as a way to prevent or maintain and manage diabetes. They may be thinking this isn't something that I can do. They may be thinking this is something that, you know, in theory sounds great, but maybe isn't something that I can practically do. So what have you learned in your research about that? Yeah, and, and certainly, you know, researchers that are studying HIT and applying it to, to clinical populations, I don't think any of us are saying that you should only ever do HIT or it's the best exercise uh, out there and, and other exercises aren't good. Totally, that's not, uh, you know, at all how, how I think and I don't think many of the researchers in, in this space think. We think it's, a, it's an option and potentially one that, that could be useful for, for some people. So when we, we, uh, we look at that, it's again, it's one of the options that, that you can use. And when we've been doing this, we actually find that, you know, some people are a little bit intimidated. Uh, they might be at the start, but when they realize that, that hey, I, I can do this and this is not actually, you know, what, what you see on, I don't know, the biggest loser or, or some, uh, you know, online uh, fitness enthusiasts doing, uh, all out exercise that, that, Hey, it's just picking up the pace for a little bit and then taking a break. And, and actually for, for individuals who are very unfit, there's, you know, a story from a cardiac rehab doctor that I've heard where he said, well, our, our, our patients can't be doing this high intensity interval training. This is not for them. And one of the research nurses there said, have you ever watched our patients walk back up the hill to their car in the parking lot? They're doing hit there because they walk a little bit and then they have to take a break and then they walk a little bit more and have to take a break. Um, so, so again, just that, that idea that it's uh, relative and individuals, once they try it out, can see that, hey, this is, this is not uh, this bad. And we, we see in the lab, again, these are obviously anecdotes, but you know, lots of people who, who maybe haven't exercised for uh, many years, but they used to you know, be an athlete or used to do sports, they actually find it very encouraging because you know, they, they can get 
better quickly um, and feel better quickly. And, and I always uh, use, we, we had a, a group of guys who were doing a hit, uh, hit study, uh, individuals with type two diabetes in our lab. And there was about five of them, they'd come in and train together and, and uh, they got into it. They would be, you know, encouraging each other and what level did you get to the on the elliptical today and that sort of thing and Monique the PhD student I always used to say there's no way that they would be like this if they were going for a 50 minute easy walk that they wouldn't have the same excitement and kind of competitiveness so again I don't think that means it's for, for everybody but but certainly there's um there's a way that this is uh, individualized as well as uh, as an option for for individuals. And I think that one of the things that's really cool about your research is that you don't focus on one in one thing in particular. So when you're looking at exercise, I know you also mentioned in the past that you have worked on things like after meal exercise or walking after meals, things like that, that might seem, you know, to be small steps, but that could have some pretty big impact. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the areas in our lab or one of the focuses, we try to think of, of novel yet practical strategies for individuals. So they often started as fun little studies. A student has an idea or we have an idea, hey, this would be a good idea. And, and post-meal walking is one of those ideas. So um, it makes sense in someone with type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes after they eat a meal, if it contains carbohydrates, their glucose starts to shoot up. And we know that that's not good to have these large glucose spikes. I and mean, we know that when you exercise, your muscles suck up glucose because they, they need uh, to use it. And, and the, the system that your muscles use to take up glucose during exercise is completely independent of, of insulin. So um, if you're insulin resistant, that system still works. So it's kind of a simple idea, but go for a walk after a meal while your glucose is rising and you can kind of blunt that, that glucose spike. So we and, and others have shown that that's, you know, kind of a relatively simple uh, strategy that you can kind of uh, strategically time exercise throughout the day um, to prevent these, these big glucose spikes. And, and we do the same thing with, uh, with our nutrition study. So we, we don't just study exercise primarily because I think, you know, nutrition and exercise go hand in hand as, as lifestyle strategies in type 2 diabetes. And, and we'll do similar uh, ideas uh, with nutrition studies. Uh, one example, we have a trial going on right now with uh, following a low carbohydrate breakfast versus a low fat breakfast, but that's the only intervention. So it's not a full blown low carb diet or keto diet. It's just the one simple strategy of let's try to you know, skip or avoid carbohydrates at breakfast because in people with type 2 diabetes, breakfast tends to be the biggest glucose spike of the day because of their physiology, but also because our typical breakfast foods are, are higher in, in carbohydrates. So um, again, that, that was born out of just a simple idea, uh, kind of, hey, this, is, this would be an interesting idea. Let's run a study. And then we, we kind of see if it works. And then if we can go on and, and run a clinical trial to see if it has uh, clinical benefit for patients. And I find that really interesting because I know that when we're looking at nutrition, it can be really controversial. And I think it can also be really complicated because what works for one person may not work for another person. And you mentioned like keto diets, things like that. For someone who is trying um, a nutrition intervention and it doesn't work, it can be so disappointing because it, it might have worked for their friend or their colleague, or it might just be something that they're not really able to manage themselves because it just doesn't fit with their lifestyle. So do you have any thoughts about that from your research about sort of the complexities of finding the right sort of nutrition intervention? Yeah, no, that, that's a great uh, point. And, and certainly the research isn't there yet to know how to personalize or, or 
precision nutrition, I, I don't think is, is there. There's obviously individuals uh, that are working on that. But uh, for, for me, I think, you know, so we study low carbohydrate and ketogenic diets, but I always tell people I'm, I'm not a keto zealot. There's a lot of uh, zealots out there that will tell you based a lot on anecdotes that it's the best diet for everybody. And it's the only diet uh, there. And, and certainly, uh, I don't think that's the case. And we have that evidence from from our studies it it works uh for for some people but it doesn't work for others obviously there's a lot of complexities based on you know probably people's underlying physiology maybe genetics also adherence and compliance uh with the diet so i certainly think there's not a one size uh fits all uh diet or exercise approach um i don't have the answers yet unfortunately to uh how to figure out for you what what works but I think some simple rules and, and they're not very fancy or so simple guidelines um, probably will work for most people and, and that's you know eating real whole food that's not processed and, and limiting our added sugars and refined carbohydrates is, is probably in the diabetes space at least is, is probably the the most tried and true and from there you, you probably need to, to look a little bit of an individualized approach of, of how that can work. And, and I always say with, um, you know, in the low carbohydrate and ketogenic diet space, my sense is 70% of the benefits of a low carb or ketogenic diet are that you're cutting out added sugars, refined carbohydrates, and most prepackaged junk food. Because if you're tracking your carbohydrates or keeping them under a certain amount, you, you can't eat those types of foods. And, and again, I, I don't have the evidence for this, but I would say about 70% of the benefits are are related to, to that. So it, you know, that's, it's, it gets a bit complicated, but that it may not be the low carb or the keto diet. It's because you're not eating these other uh, prepackaged refined carbohydrate and added sugar foods that you just can't uh, eat if, if you're sticking to that diet. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And it's really funny. One of my mentors said to me once when I was asking her about diet and diabetes, that the diet that will work best for someone is usually the one that they can stick to. And so finding um, the right one for you is very complicated, but that leads into um, one of your other areas of study, which is into type two diabetes remission, which again, another area that's a little bit complicated and a little bit um, controversial in some levels, but I'd love to hear more about the work that you're doing in that area because it's really exciting. Yeah, no, we're, we're very excited about that work and it's probably taken on uh, the, the majority or the, the biggest chunk of our, uh, our focus and time in the last few years. Um, so the concept of type 2 diabetes remission, um, again, as you mentioned, controversial or different definitions, but the, the basic premise is that someone who has type 2 diabetes after following an intervention, in this case, a nutritional intervention, now would have glucose levels or uh, below the diabetes threshold. Usually that's an A1C less than six and a half percent and not taking any medications. And then there's obviously some nuances there. How long is that? Do you consider if you're still on a diet, that's an ongoing therapy or not? And those are all kind of unanswered or controversial questions. But the whole concept, I think, why it's exciting for me is it, it provides some hope for for individuals with type 2 diabetes, because instead of the kind of adage that this is a chronic progressive disease, and, and I've had, uh, you know, many uh, participants in our labs, uh, in our studies in the lab throughout the years, it's a very common uh, belief, you know, that they're, I, I just want to avoid having to, to go on the insulin, right? I don't want to have to take insulin. My doctors told me that I'm eventually going to have to go on insulin. So I don't think that provides a lot of hope. It's almost fear for, for patients. Whereas the idea of remission, if, if you can say, hey, you, you, you have this condition, but 
we know how to, to, to treat it to get it into remission, much like we get cancer or, or other diseases into to remission. It doesn't mean the disease has completely gone away and cured, but now you can work towards that goal. So again, I think that provides a lot of hope for patients. So that's what kind of gets me excited about it. And then what we're trying to work on is, okay, how do we actually study this? Are you truly in remission? Is the disease process um, being reversed such that now your, your beta cells are working better and uh, your insulin sensitivities improved? Um, and then what we're working to now is, is how to actually implement that in our healthcare system. Because if you think about it, it, it creates a lot of potential issues that we don't really have guidelines for. The biggest one being, how do we de-prescribe or reduce medications in people with type 2 diabetes who are on them who, who now might not need them? We have guidelines for how to add on therapies, but we don't have a guidelines for really how to, to take people off therapies. You know, whose role in the healthcare system is that? Um, how do we do that safely? Um, what are the protocols to do that? So that's where we're, we're um, working. We've ran a trial where pharmacists are at the the center of the care team there working with family physicians and pharmacists obviously know medication management they know diabetes and they're also very very good i've learned um, at at safety right they want to keep the patients safe which is a key aspect in this idea of de-prescribing and remission so we've ran a trial where pharmacists kind of lead an intervention that's based on a very low carb ketogenic low energy diet but the, the pharmacist is not a nutritionist but their goal is to manage the, the medications with uh, assistance and approvals from the family physician and now to your previous question the point is uh, we're trying to work towards the, the next iteration of, of the study is okay how can we get people to stick to this for the long term and what's the best approach for for an individual um, and that's where we're trying to work with an entire healthcare team with dietitians or certified diabetes educators to then uh, work with the pharmacist and the family physician to, to come up with a plan that would, you know, get long-term remission of type 2 diabetes across several years. And, and I think that would be, um, you know, provide uh, even more hope for patients that, hey, maybe the, the condition can, you know, quote unquote, go away or at least not be uh, under active uh, therapy. And yeah. Because for me, I think it's such an interesting area. And I think it's something that so many people find hope in that they can, you know, take on these interventions and do these things and, and have this outcome. And it's, it really is a wonderful thing. And it's really exciting. The one thing that I worry about whenever I see this, though, is the idea that people have this ingrained notion that going on insulin is a failure of some sort or something that they've done wrong. And so I wonder how you're looking at that in your work, because I just think sometimes we need to reframe that in type two diabetes, because for some people, it's going to be inevitable, no matter how hard they work, that some quirk of genetics or something, it may be that they're going to have to go on insulin, which will just make them healthy overall is part of their therapy, but how do we work the two together? Because I think they're both excellent interventions and they're both things that will work for some people. So are you considering that at all in your research? Yeah, no, it's a great point. And, and you know, as I mentioned, I, I, I try to, to uh, not, there's a lot of people in the space that uh, of diabetes remission or ketogenic diets that would, you know, say big pharma is, is bad. And, you know, insulin is, you know, there's just a paper came out yesterday, how insulin treatment is associated with uh, worst COVID outcomes, right? And it got published in a big journal. And again, it kind of points to the, you know, well, if you're on insulin, that's bad. It, obviously, in that study, it's correlational, not causational. So, you know, individuals who have 
worse progression of the disease have to be on insulin. And then they also had uh, worse outcomes uh, in COVID. So I definitely don't think that pharma is bad or insulin is bad. So in terms of how we're addressing that in, in our work, that's a, a great point. We've, we've been, you know, maybe um, this is a good learning point for me. We've been more thinking of it from, it's often a big motivator for a patient to get off insulin. Um, so we've been thinking of it in that way as opposed to the, the other. So um, we probably need to consider that. And, and in these next iterations, I'm really um, starting to, to learn and, and uh, incorporate the power of qualitative research within our trials. And so I'm certainly not an expert in that, but bringing in experts that can do that so that we can get um, the patient perspective and, and ideally from all different types or different extremes of, of uh, patients, not just, you know, the, the ones that, that did well and, uh, and went off their insulin, um, getting both perspectives. So that's a great point, Chris, and, and one that we, we definitely need to consider. But I think, yeah, it, the framing of type 2 diabetes remission should not be in the, you know, it should be, a, it, it's an option or it's a, it's a possibility, not, you know, that's your goal. And if you don't achieve it, you're, you're a failure. Certainly that, that would be the wrong way to approach that. I just find it super interesting because I know um, that you hear it a lot in communities where they feel like that when they go on insulin that they've somehow, you know, that it's their fault. Whereas oftentimes there's nothing you can do. It may be your physiology. It may be so many other unrelated factors. So it's just something that I thought of when you were, when we were speaking about how it would be so great because it's such a great intervention. And when it works, it's so motivating and people love it. But if it doesn't work for you, what do we do? <laughs> so yeah. There's that. And I will transition from that because I wanted to ask you a little bit. And this is one of the things I've been asking everybody. You're part of the BC Diabetes Research Network. You're doing really amazing work. You're working with some incredible people from across the province. How has that helped you to achieve some of the goals with this work? Yeah, no, it's been uh, very uh, instrumental and encouraging to, um, to to meet other researchers and have kind of the feeling of of a of a team or a, or a collective goal that we're uh, we're doing uh, something in BC. You know, we I always since I started uh, at UBC knew that diabetes research was strong, but but we didn't have kind of a collective uh, voice or a collective team. So. Um, certainly, I think just the feeling of that, you know, when we have UBCO Diabetes Research Day here and, and the folks from Vancouver come to Kelowna, it's, it's one of the most exciting and encouraging, uh, motivating times of the year for me um, and going to Vancouver for, for events. So I, I think that that kind of feeling for me is great, as well as an obviously, you know, making the connections and um, with different collaborators. So, for example, I've worked with Bruce Verschier and Jim Johnson at Vancouver on different projects and that, and, and those things I think are facilitated by uh, BCDRN. Um, and, you know, right now when we're, many of us are writing a diabetes team grant that's uh, at LOI is due uh, soon, you know, there's, there's several teams from BC and the BCDRN involved. And again, I think those things are, are facilitated and uh, expanded as opposed to just the, you know, the uh, typical group of researchers that, that would have got together anyways. Now those things are, are getting bigger and, and expanding. So um, that, that's uh, how I view BCDRN has provided a collective voice and, and kind of a motivating uh, team uh, behind the, the work that we do in our individual labs. Wonderful. And, and for my last question, I just really wanted to ask you what you see is next. What is the future for the work that you're doing? I think we're really focused on this, this idea of diabetes remission and, and how to integrate that into the healthcare system. Um, but we, we want to do that with a 
running a clinical trial. So we have, you know, robust evidence. So the next step is, is this kind of team-based uh, type 2 diabetes remission strategy and trying to uh, translate or scale up our, uh, our pharmacist-led uh, intervention uh, to include a, a wider healthcare team and trying to see if, if we can achieve type 2 diabetes remission you know, in the community, in the real world um, over a longer period of time. So that's kind of going to be the goal for the next uh, couple of years. Obviously, that's going to require a significant chunk of funding, but uh, that will be uh, what most of the focus will be um, in terms of the big grants for, for the next little bit, trying to, to build on those uh, encouraging findings. Wonderful. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of exciting stuff on the horizon that we'll be watching out for. So thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It was wonderful to talk to you. Great. Well, thank you very much for having me, Krista. You've been listening to From Beta Cells to Bicycles, a podcast from the BC Diabetes Research Network. If you'd like more information on the network, visit diabetesbc.ca. And if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe so you can learn about even more of the diabetes research being done here in British Columbia. Thanks for listening.